0: How you doing?
1: Doing great, how about you?
0: Yeah, I'm good. Snowy slash rainy and slushy and cold in New York today. So it's like a gloomy day, but like it's a Friday. What is there to be down about?
1: We're getting ready for the weekend. Yeah, we finally got snow here too. It's been really, really dry. So it's been nice to have a skiff of snow.
0: In Utah?
1: Yeah, yeah. Surprisingly, it's been a really weird dry winter. So okay. there's not much to ski on, but there's it's trying. We'll see.
0: (laughs) If I had to guess, you're a fan of colder weather, snow, mountains, all of the above. Yes.
1: Yeah, I definitely love it all. I love all seasons, but I've always loved winter because I love skiing. And a lot of the sports I do, I have to be in the cold. And even though I don't like being cold, the sports I love, you're like literally in freezing weather with lots of clothes on. So. Nope. It is what it is. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Exact opposite. Exact yeah. opposite. Yeah. We briefly touched on it, but I grew up in the South. I grew up in Texas. I am made to be in the sun, to be in the heat.
1: Oh yeah. I get that.
0: Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Idaho. So it's like a small farm town outside of the capital, Boise. So it's somewhere in that area and it's country and farms and lots of fields. And we're surrounded by mountains and rivers and lakes and all these beautiful things. But yeah, it was a very small town upbringing. It's grown up a lot now. Now it's pretty busy and very different, but that was what I knew.
0: Have you seen the show Yellowstone?
1: Oh my gosh. I've only seen the first three episodes, but I don't pay for the peacock or all the things it's on. And I really want to, because I am absolutely obsessed. That show is like my dream life.
0: Hearing your story, I'm like, this is definitely Yellowstone vibes, for sure.
1: I love that. Growing
0: up on a farm.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, we didn't have a farm, but everyone around us was a farmer. And so my family was like, we had an inc- an acre lot and we were surrounded by fields, but my family nice. doesn't actually. Now he has a tractor. My dad got, re- got a go. tractor when he retired.
0: <laughs> Everyone does that or they get a riding mower.
1: Oh yeah. The riding mower. Yeah. That's like luxury. Yeah. I mowed lawns growing up, so we had to push all our mowers. So have you ever worked on a farm? Oh man, I wanted to so bad. That was definitely my dream. I would with my friends. So basically... I was pretty clever because I feel like as a kid, I knew I loved horses, farms, ranches, rodeo, all those things. So I just made friends with people that had that because it wasn't too hard because I'm in Idaho, but then I got to go horseback riding. And so I I did get to live like vicariously with my friends and on the weekends I would help them and just, I don't know, follow them around doing their chores with them. So it's not like it was my lifestyle or anything, but Mm -hmm. I definitely got to experience it (laughs) through friends and then sometimes through family. Like we have a lot of uncles. And my dad's side, they're all very cowboy style. So Mm. that lifestyle is alive and well, but it's not my dad. So vicariously through Mm. other avenues. Got it.
0: That's so Mm -hmm. cool though. I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But before we dive into your background, I'm going to knock out this intro. What's up, y'all? Welcome to the State for the Stories podcast. I'm your host, Jacob Elijah. Joining me today, adventure photographer, bound to be somewhere, athlete, identical triplet, puppy mom to grizz creator kylie fly what's up there you
1: go (laughs) nicely done
0: and before we get into your preference on being behind the camera rather than in front of it what are some of the fun things you did growing up specifically in a small town in farm country if you want to call it
1: oh oh yeah so as a kid we did a couple things my uh, my sisters and i always hung out so we were always outside So the family, we'd go camping and hiking into the rivers and things like that, into the mountains. But with friends, like on a regular day, we always would go skateboarding. And I was never good at skateboarding, but I really wanted to be good at skateboarding. So we did a lot of that, just rolling around and going to parks and things like that. And we, I rode horses. So I made friends with people who had horses. And so I did a lot of that as a kid. I'd go horseback riding every weekend. And we played sports, so basketball, soccer, those types of things. And I've always skied, so I would save up all my money and go skiing. And we had to, that was a little harder as a younger kid. I had to take the ski bus, but once I got my license, that's all I did because I could go whenever I wanted. And then, yeah, sometimes we just go out and shoot guns. And we would also have like paintball fights with our friends. I mean, we got pretty creative because it's like, you're you're kind of just in the middle of nowhere so a lot of my friends were in a farm town away from where I lived and so it was even more like remote and so we'd go to hot springs we'd go on drives we would just like play around in the fields
0: that's so cool yeah it's pretty fun it sounds and feels like a very outdoorsy mm-hmm. upbringing yeah, um, yeah like you said Boise was the next biggest city near you did you spend a lot of time in the city or not really
1: not at all. Growing up, I never went to Boise. That was like, I remember thinking like, oh, it's the big city. And now I think it's grown enough that when, when you're in my hometown, it doesn't feel like you're in the middle of a country area. It's pretty developed and it's just not quite what it was. But yeah, Boise was like, I think the only time I went as a, as a younger kid, if it wasn't with my family to visit like aunts and uncles or something, it would be for New Year's. One time I went downtown, but like I don't know, see what the city was like. Yeah, <laughs> But I always felt like, wow, look at the big buildings. And it was oh, just very wow. <laughs> far away.
0: Immediately, though, like, the, not for me.
1: Oh, yeah, I definitely prefer it. And, and to go skiing, we had to go through the city mm-hmm. to go skiing.
0: So. Okay. Before we get into skiing, because I feel like that's a big part of who you are, let's touch base on some of the other sports you played, like basketball, soccer, skateboarding. How was it growing up being a multi-dimensional athlete?
1: Well, uh, I I... My family has a joke that we kind of talk about ourselves like we're we're dabblers. We do a little bit of everything, but we're not like super great at any one thing. And while I will say I can hang as a skier, like I'm pretty proud of how I ski, but like in general there's a lot of interests, so I I have a hard time kind of focusing on one. And then I go through phases where I get really obsessed with something and then I just do nothing but that. And I definitely did that with basketball. So, I think growing up I was very obsessed with basketball for a very long time. Like I would practice all the time. I try super hard and, and I played soccer starting in like middle school. And I loved soccer for totally different reasons because soccer was like aggressive and you could hit people sometimes and you wouldn't get in trouble. <laughs> it's like a different vibe. And, and I also liked that on a field you're so spread out. Cause I had a, I have a hard time even today with like Performance anxiety, like kind of like this idea that like people can see me and watch me and like I'll make a mistake or do something dumb, and so basketball made me pretty nervous. Like games were pretty nerve-wracking, and like free throw shots were like a total nightmare. So things like that stressed me out. Where soccer, I could just kind of blend in. And it was just like a little dot running around on the field, and so I liked them for different reasons. But those are kind of the main sports that I was that I was into as a kid. I didn't really. I tried a few other things, but not like I did ballet. I was terrible at it. I'm way too, like, shy. Like, I was extremely shy, so it was pretty painful to watch. Oh, that was tough.
0: (laughs) How was it with your sisters? I'd imagine playing sports with them on the same team, was it very competitive growing up
1: with your other sisters? That was, like, I would say that was a huge part of my identity, and Mm -hmm. also a huge part of my identity crisis, because as a triplet, you're identical. We're identical. So we look the same. And as kids, we looked exactly the same. And so people don't really know who you are as an individual. So like Kylie Fly wasn't Kylie. It was just like one of the triplets. And so people just call us the fly triplets and it applied to sports too. Cause like they couldn't, I never felt like I was seen as an individual. Like how does Kylie play basketball? Instead it was like, oh, the triplets. And so we always got lumped together. And I felt like my skill level or wherever I was However, I was performing, it wasn't really considered as an individual sport. I felt like I was an item, like we were a little team getting grouped together. So a lot of times we were on the same teams. And even if it didn't shouldn't have been that way, like we'd get pulled aside and a coach might say, like, I would put you on this team, but I'm gonna have to put you on this team because and I remember they'd always be like, We just don't want your parents to have to go to multiple different games at different times. And they always had these excuses where you'd be like, But dude, like I can do better, or like I can I want to be seen as an individual. And so sports were competitive because like we loved each other and we're best friends. It's always been that way. But with sports, that was always kind of like a like a comp- I could see how we were competing with each other because we were just trying to be seen as individuals. Not because we were going against each other. I just remember specifically feeling like I want to feel like an individual and I don't. So sports was like the only way I could figure it out as a kid. And it wasn't exactly working. So <laughs> I had to find other ways but yeah, it's very interesting. I get it. Yeah. Yeah, I
0: get it. Kind of like you want to stand alone in a way, especially with your talents as an athlete, right? Did all three of you share the passion for basketball and soccer and skiing, and also not an interest in sports, but different skill levels?
1: Yeah, I would say, like, if I'm talking about our kid years, and we're really the triplets, we can all have different beliefs about this like Lisa Mm and I will definitely be like you're right I was better than you and so it's kind of funny because we're pretty competitive with each other but in basketball we definitely all had different levels of interest so like I was definitely the most obsessed but we all played and my other sister Megan she was also quite in love with basketball but not as much as me I would say she just cared a little less she's just a little less competitive and not in a negative way she just like she was just like, yeah, sounds good. Like, that'll be fun. And then Lisa's super competitive, but she cared about soccer more. And, Me- and Megan and I with soccer, we were like the same. We were both defenders. We hung out in front of the box and we were having a good time. Like <laughs> Sometimes we're like, whoops. Like, but then when we get aggressive, we get really aggressive. So it's kind of like it has to be ignited where Lisa's kind of like a fireball all the time. And I was like, that was soccer, but it was different in basketball. So for some reason, it definitely varied. And skill level, I think, was directly related to like how interested we were. And so Lisa was like mega stoked on soccer. She played the longest. She started in like third grade where Megan and I joined in like middle school. So she was, I would say, leaps and bounds ahead in skills. And Megan and I were just like, sweet, yeah, we'll play soccer. It's pretty fun. (laughs) But then basketball was the same. So yeah.
0: One more question here. Being on the same team. Did you find it pretty fun that you could compete alongside your sisters? Is it like you kind of get that sixth sense? Like, oh, pass me the ball here. I'm going to make oh, this yeah. cut. I'm going to do this <laughs> yeah. jump. Like all of that, right?
1: Oh, it totally was a thing because okay. we always got consecutive numbers. Okay. So like one year it was like five, six, and 7, 20, 21, 22, whatever. So it was extremely useful because it'd be very confusing to the other team because they had no idea. Like when you're one-on-one, They'd be like, dude, who's my man? Like, <laughs> like, they don't know where they are. They're like, <laughs> oh, like, wow. I'm in the, like basketball was a lot, it was even more confusing because you're so closely, you know, where you're all stuck together all the time yeah, on the court. And yeah. I, I, yeah. And I was point guard and one of my sisters was post. And so it was like one of those things where you could just see the girls just running around confused. And in soccer, it was especially useful because <laughs> you have to run a lot further. So they would lose all this time and we'd be open all the time because they just couldn't find their number and then they would get really upset, and we wouldn't tell people we were triplets until some girl would be standing next to you, and she'd be like, I thought you were number seven. I was supposed to be on number seven, and they're looking at you, and you're like, so yeah, it it definitely worked to our benefit, but I think like as far as being on the offense side, I don't know that we were super clever about how to use that to our advantage other than when we were both defenders because we were left and right wing, so I guess we kind of had the benefit of a little bit of confusion and I definitely can predict some of like I know what Lisa would be good at or like she'd always drop it a certain way or you know there might be things like that but yeah
0: so cool so growing up in high school there is a set of twins and then a younger brother but the twins their identifiers were their color of socks so one twin wore white socks and then the other one wore black socks did y'all have a similar kind of the method
1: Yeah, they definitely were being intentional. I think we were not at all that way, but we we were as kids. And and I think with like sports, at least on game days, you all look the same. So you're just sorry. But we definitely growing up had different bracelets. And my mom did that from when we were babies. We hated dressing alike. And thank goodness my mom didn't make us because I just can't. (laughs) (laughs) There goes your individuality. So I feel like she always had us like color coded as babies. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because as we've grown up, we've always gravitated towards those colors. And those are, to this day, our favorite colors. And my mom said, even as like little tiny human beings, she would like set out little piles of clothes and for each of us to wear. And we would all walk to our color and before we knew what the color was or could say it. So I guess in that sense, we did that. And we had like bracelets or we'd do our hair a certain way, but it wasn't for the sake of other people. We just, you know, in in our mind, we were just like, if you want to know who we are, you got to figure it out. And we would, we would like challenge people, especially our coaches. Like if coaches didn't know who was who, we were like, dude, come on. You see me every single day. I am a human being and I have a name. And it was the same thing with our teachers. So we wanted people to figure it out. Backpacks. We were always like as different as possible. So we'd be like, dude, I'm the one with the red backpack. How have you not figured that out by now? And it was more frustrating than like, oh, let's help everyone by color coding. Yeah, (laughs) we weren't that cute.
0: So from basketball, soccer, skiing, skateboarding, did you play any sports in college?
1: Yeah, I didn't. So once I got to college, I kind of gave up on com- competitive sports mm-hmm. in that sense. But I did my first year play intramural soccer. So, but it wasn't like a competitive league. It was more for fun. And and then I think that's when I like decided, yeah, I'm not going to do this anymore because I didn't care enough anymore. And it wasn't how I was like, identifying myself I and I, I did the ski team too so that I had more fun because I'm skiing but anytime I have found that like I make something competitive for sport like for like times goals you know medals or all the things competitive athletes love I basically got too anxious or I would I would become stressed about it and when I realized I was like dang I'm stressed doing something I love that sucks Once I eliminated the competitive side, because I can be competitive, I'd almost prefer it with myself than like measuring up against other people. Because for me, that's like, it doesn't give me the value that maybe other competitive people might. Maybe it's just my mentality, but basically I played for that year and then I called it good after that. I like played in leagues for fun, like throughout high school or throughout college. I played soccer league stuff, would meet up with people in the field, kind of like just free play, but Mm yeah. Yeah.
0: I get that mentality. If anything, we probably share that mentality to the best competitor you could ever have is yourself. My whole mindset has shifted to just be a better version of me and push myself.
1: Yeah, I I do feel like depending on where you go with your athleticism, like you have to have something to kind of measure, at least if you want to progress or grow or get stronger or whatever your goals are. Mm -hmm. And So if that's like, oh, with my backcountry skiing, like I'd like to get faster on the uphill so I can like time my skis and like see how, if I've made progress on the same track or whatever, things like that, that are like more about your improvement to overall benefit (laughs) the other people you're around, hopefully.
0: With skiing, walk me through your progression as a skier.
1: So I've always loved skiing and that was my, that's how I experienced the outdoors growing up. Like that was my sport outside. Mm. And so I always did that just for fun and loved it. And then in my like mid twenties, I remember I saw some pictures of people in the back country, like in these wild places that I was like, how did they get there? Cause I mean, all I knew was resort skiing. And, and then I went on this trip to Europe where I skied in the French Alps and I skied the Valley Blanche, like this glacier. And I remember when I did that, it was the first time I'd experienced that country terrain and like wore a harness and like learned about the gear and like did all the avalanche stuff and crevasse and I was just like wow this world is insane so I definitely made a huge shift when I took my skis somewhere new to me and then learned about this whole other world about how I could see and explore the mountains and so I remember that was when I was like I need to figure out how to make this a part of my daily life so I did all the avalanche education and looked into all that and started learning and building new skills got a bunch of new gear which is like so expensive so it was kind of like it took time because it's like a process unless you're like loaded I guess but yeah it was was definitely a slow process but as I built that up and got this experience and skills um, I knew I could ski well enough it was just a matter of like how do you get to those places safely and then like build a team because you can't do that stuff alone or you shouldn't and so it definitely progressed into now I prefer skiing in the backcountry and ski touring and I just love to just have a fun time skiing has always been my fun place like I was just in another course doing some review stuff with avalanche rescue and I was I told the guide there I was like yeah I think skiing has just become my happy spot like it used to be there were there have definitely been ebbs and flows where I'm like I'm gonna push myself and like do this thing but I just like to enjoy the turns and like I'm not super picky and I also don't want to die in an avalanche so I'm not trying to like do some gnarly coulards and like some things definitely interest me but some things I'm like really okay and comfortable saying yeah I think I'm good and like my risk tolerance is it just changes depending on what my objectives and goals are for the season but definitely more oriented to that
0: what is in your opinion the most difficult part to skiing
1: oh the difficult
0: part is it the athleticism? Is it picking up skiing as a sport? Is it the risk factor? Is it knowing the course? Is it education? What is the most difficult uh, part say, for you as a skier?
1: I feel like, I feel like it's got to be something education related because there's so much, specifically to backcountry skiing. So there's so much you need to understand and know about snowpack, which is a lot of science. And I think when I first got into backcountry skiing, I had no idea how much science there is and so learning about snow science was like in my brain I'm a creative type of person like I'm not I know I'm intelligent but I definitely struggle with math and science and so those types of things were like kind of like the techie techie things in life like always make me go wait I need to like hear that again and so really diving into that world to understand what's safe and what's not safe and like identifying factors in the in the out in the landscape and like being able to look at the snow and understand what you're actually looking at. And to make educated decisions about what you're going to do and what you're going to ski, what aspect, all the different things that go into decision making before you even hit a skin track and the entire time you're out there. So I would say that's just the most, there's just the most risk in that domain because if you don't understand what you're skiing on and you don't understand the consequences of it and you just go out there casually, like not totally aware of what's moving beneath you then you can get into some real trouble. And so just understanding that and getting a lot of experience, digging a lot of pits, looking at a lot of layers over and over again. So you're not like, and you also can't, you can't be, well, the way I look at it, I never want to be someone in the back country that doesn't understand what I'm looking at. Like I never want someone or us to be digging a pit because you make team decisions. Like it's all about like you and the people you ski in the backcountry with have to be able to save each other's lives because you are the lifeline. If an avalanche happens, you are a rescuer if you're not buried. And if you're buried, you better hope that your friends or your partners can rescue you. So there's so much more than like let's go skiing and have fun. It's like are we all on the same page and like and there's so many safety checks, so many things you got to do. So I think that's just the long answer. <laughs> wow.
0: No, that's good. That is a uh, an eye opener that skiing might even be more of a team sport than many people realize but it actually in fact might be more team oriented than anything else
1: yeah and it's interesting because I think I I think in my brain I like individual sports but I end up I keep finding myself in these very partner dependent sports Mm -hmm. because backcountry skiing is like that and while there are definitely people out there that go into the backcountry alone I just know that's not something I'm willing to do and then with rock climbing it's the same thing like you have someone at the end of your rope. So there's always a factor. There's always a partner factor and some, some degree of like reliability, like where you're interdependent and so you have to work together.
0: Two more questions about skiing. Uh What is the difference resort skiing to backcountry skiing?
1: Well, resort skiing is controlled. So you're in an avalanche controlled place. So they Mm. bomb things and they have, you know, ski patrol and People out there where their only job is to make sure the slopes are safe and ready for us to show up at 9 a.m. and go, wee. So, Mm -hmm. and also you're taking a lift so you're not. What what was that? that? What was
0: that one more time? To go, how? How is it resort skiing?
1: (laughs) Just to go, wee. (laughs) It's so much fun. (laughs) Yeah, resorts are like so fun because all the, I mean, most of the risk factor is kind of handled. You just show up with your
0: minimal risk factors, you would say.
1: Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So it's like fun just ripping around and having a good time. And then, if you get hurt there's literally ski patrol and people are right there so it's a much more controlled environment and you get to ride a lift and sit on a chair and not have to sweat your way up and you can get as many laps as you want so so that's more like a yeah like a fun zone whereas backcountry, you're you're they like in the backcountry they say you earn your turns so you have to walk uphill and sweat a whole bunch and bring a bunch of snacks and try hard you know to get to get the the turns that you want because Sometimes you can spend all day walking, get one run and you've spent like six hours uphill to like be done in like 20 minutes. (laughs) You're like sick. I hope that was worth it. (laughs) So you kind of got to really love skiing. I think to, to do that, cause you're really putting in the work and you're putting yourself in a risky scenario just Mm -hmm. because you you have to know your stuff. You can't Mm -hmm. just walk up and then ski down and be like, cool, we did it.
0: Last question here on skiing. Do you have a crazy wild skiing story or just what would your favorite adventure be?
1: Um, gosh, I have a lot of favorite adventures um, that are like not related to injuries or things like that.
0: Let's tackle maybe a crazy wild story.
1: Yeah, I would say, I think the funniest one is just when I broke my scapula because (laughs) I didn't, I was just having a great day. I was with my sister and we were in a resort. So we were in a controlled, safe, seeming space. Mm. And um, we didn't have, I forgot my poles that day. Mm. And so skiers typically like that do a lot of park, like hit jumps and do all the fun, cool tricks, do like polis skiing a lot because they're just ripping around in parks all day. And my sisters and I used to do that in high school. We'd go to the park and we wouldn't bring our poles and we'd just make it a a pole—a polis day. And so I was like, oh, dang, I forgot my poles. I guess it'll be a park day kind of day. And we were just messing around because I don't try to do tricks anymore. At one point, I just was like, you know what? I don't have to be that cool. (laughs) There was a day where the most I got to was a 360. And I definitely loved loved that. But like, yeah, yeah, I kind of just, at some point, I was like, I don't really want to get hurt. So I just do little. Any
0: backflips, flips, flips, anything like that?
1: I could not, I could not do, I'm not that cool. I could do a 360. <laughs> so That's
0: awesome I never. No.
1: I think I tried to flip once and it was terrifying. Like I, I can't even, yeah, I would practice on the trampoline and stuff, but I knew I wouldn't. I'm just, I don't know if I'm cut out to be that cool. Mm. So I just like spins and things like that and like rails and boxes and things like that I definitely That's got cool. into. But, but this particular day, since I didn't have my poles, we were just having fun. And on the last run of the day, I just, it was late April and there was just like a, a root that was shaped like a little rainbow, like a little loop root sticking out of the snow. And I remember I was skiing really fast. We were having a great time and I saw it and I was like, shoot, I got to like make a hard cut because I was like coming out real quick and it came out of nowhere. But the tip of my ski just went directly in the loop. Like I remember watching my ski tips and then it just ripped my ski off. And then I did like three flips, tomahawked down and hit a couple trees. And then landed in a tree well, and I mean I yard sold. I lost all my gear, and then I had a ski in the back. I landed on a ski that was in my shoulder, but I had hit a tree twice on the same shoulder, so that's definitely why it broke. So my scapula was like messed
0: up. Oh man, that's gnarly.
1: Oof. Yeah, it was. It was. Wow, it was cool.
0: that's intense. That's wild.
1: Yeah, it was definitely the most scared I'd been. It was the first big break that I've ever had, like a
0: I've never been skiing. I would love to learn how to do skiing, snowboarding. The polar opposite literally would be surfing. I don't know if there's ever wrong time to get into it or never too late.
1: Never too late for anything. I think it's amazing when people, if you find something that interests you and you could be 55 or 95 or whatever, I think it's awesome. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter when you start. That should never be something that holds you back.
0: So how did you get into rock climbing? Do you do any of the free climbing? Is that the right?
1: It's there's there's rock climbing is basically free climbing.
0: Okay. And there's
1: free soloing. So if you've there seen the movies with Alec Connell where he has yeah. no rope, yeah. I definitely do not pursue any kind of free soloing. The only time you're free soloing or not using a rope is in the alpine where you where it's a necessity. Sometimes that does happen where you're like doing, you're doing traverses or scrambles or like trying to get to a point where a rope doesn't make sense and it's not safe and it's actually better to like not have the rope. And those are all like decisions that you have to learn how to make with time and experience in, the, in that type of terrain. But in general, yeah, I just, I just climb with the rope like a normal rock climber. <laughs> and yeah, it's pretty fun. I love it.
0: What's the highest elevation? I know nothing about rock climbing. So let, let's educate myself okay. and hopefully some of the listeners. Let's dive into rock climbing. How did you get into it? And then walk me through your progression as a rock climber.
1: Sure. Yeah. I got into rock climbing. I think it actually started originally when I got a Groupon to a bouldering gym.
0: As one getting into rock climbing does through Groupons, coupons for classes. Oh yeah.
1: yeah, But the thing is, this is where it's funny. So I I got this $10 Groupon where I went bouldering once. So I went to a gym and I touched a few holds and I was like, this is a funny sport. And it's kind of interesting, but it's, I, I knew, and bouldering to this day is like not 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 what I pursue like bouldering is really cool and great but like it's not where I fell in love so that was just kind of like an intro to this idea and then I met someone I had a friend who and I had other friends I just knew a number of people who rock climbed but I didn't know them very well so I started like exploring like what is that and what do I need and how do I do that so I had a few people in the beginning that kind of mentored me or took me out and went rock climbing with me but I would say my first, like when I fell in love with climbing was when I climbed in the Tetons and my first big rock climb, like literally my first rock climb at all, actually, other than a few things at the gym that day was seven pitches in the Alpine. And so I had no idea, <laughs> which when you learn climbing, like I learned trad climbing, which is traditional climbing. So you're putting your hands in cracks with all this heavy gear oh, wow. and For someone who had like little to no concept of what rock climbing was like learning that as you go is 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 a long it's like there's a lot to learn there's a lot of Mm -hmm. systems and a lot of things of safety and let alone getting dragged up pitches to the top of some peak when you're just like a total noob so it's miraculous (laughs) honestly that my friend trusted me enough to like make that happen i definitely don't recommend that as as you get into climbing and want to learn, there's a lot of really safe, smart ways to do it. I wouldn't necessarily say I did it the right way. I don't, I just think that's the way I, that's how it happened. And, and I learned a lot of things. And I remember after that, I definitely knew what my limits at the time were. And I understood like my fears and I learned like what I was interested in. So I just made sure to kind of like go that direction. So everything I pursued in the beginning was high alpine climbing. So I did all trad multi-pitch, which is just like you climb from a from the bottom to an anchor, and then you climb from that anchor to the next anchor to the next anchor until you get to the summit of a peak. And so that was kind of how I started. And then rock climbing opened up the world of mountaineering, which is what ski mountaineering and backcountry skiing. I was already kind of exploring that. But then I did a big expedition to Aconcagua, which is one of the seven summits in Argentina. And it's at... Tw- yeah, 22,800 some odd feet. And so that was like my biggest, my first huge like big mountain climbing, which is totally different than rock climbing because you're on your feet carrying a backpack and it's just like long, slow, high altitude climbing. So it's there's a lot of other factors that go into that that are, they're kind of two different worlds like rock climbing and mountaineering, but you also kind of need all the skills of rope systems and all those types of things to be able to do these things efficiently or safely, Mm -hmm. but.
0: Wow. That's so cool. Have you done the overnight camping, set up the tent on the side of a cliff thing?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Portal edge on a big wall. (laughs) Yeah. No way. (laughs) Yeah. That's just like, that's like big wall climbing. So yeah, I actually bought a portal ledge with my partner last year. So we've been doing that a couple of times.
0: Nice. <laughs> Walk me through that process. Like I want to know how do you set up your tent or like, I don't know. I mean, maybe we don't yeah, dive, it's dive so, into it now. That's so wild.
1: Oh, it's definitely like a whole other thing. So I feel like um, usually there's a partner that has more experience and maybe more skills. So you can like learn and practice with them if they're like kind enough to be like hey this is how you do it or or you just figure it out on your own so what I've done is I built like a a little anchor station in my backyard that is on the back of my shed so an anchor station is just like the the two bolts of the chains and so I could practice creating systems and like practice hanging my ledge and like which is your tent your little tent that hangs off the side of the wall and so you have to have all the gear and then once you have the gear you have to practice a whole bunch because the last thing you want is to be like 2000 feet off the ground and be like, I don't know what this does. <laughs> so, so a lot of systems practice, like I have, a, I also set up a system in my garage so I can practice hauling and like doing like ascending, they call it jugging. So I also do that for my work, jugging, the ascending the a rope thing to shoot photography on ropes. And so it's not an unfamiliar system. It's, it's just a form of aid climbing. So I feel like it's a progressive thing, like as a new climber, I don't think that's a great idea unless you're fully like following and just like backseat kind of learning and being there as a supportive role. Like, hey, tell me what I need to do, but also I don't know what I'm doing kind of thing. I think it would, I think it's much better when you're experienced, you've been climbing a while and you kind of understand Well, you do understand what you're doing and and how to do things safely because there's a lot of things that go into rock climbing, let alone setting up home on the side of a wall it's basically like, I think the best description is like it's vertical backpacking. So everything you would do on the horizontal end, but it's going up.
0: <laughs> wow. That's so wild with like, but with gravity against you, right? Like yeah, that's and, insane. And like,
1: lots of exposure because I think what I didn't realize before I did my first big wall was, I mean, I knew it was exposed because you obviously see the movies or you see the photos or when you're climbing, you look up at the wall and you see a little ledge. You're like, wow, that's way up there. Wow. You know, but then once you're actually climbing a lot of them are like steep overhanging so they're like this so you're just like swinging around in space mm. and and you know they're they're all the things but i just think getting used to the air like the exposure oh
0: yeah. i'm afraid
1: of i'm afraid of heights so wow so this was like i'm sweating just thinking about like i get really sweaty <laughs> i get really i get really nervous oh
0: my gosh
1: and i'm like oh my gosh my greatest fears are all right here but it's kind of like a part of the fun mm-hmm. at the same time because you put yourself
0: so fun. That is so cool. Do you ever look at a rock and think, I want to climb that? Is that kind of a thing that happens or no? Not really.
1: Oh yeah. I think that definitely happens. Like oh, there's, there's a lot of climbing that's already established. So, mm-hmm. and like there's guidebooks for that, you know, so you just like look at them and look at the book and like try to find what you're looking at in the book or the app or whatever. And sometimes there's places like I find like in a lot of international destinations, like where you'll see a wall and it's like, I wonder if people climb that," because. I'm in this place in Peru and I don't know anything about this area and I don't know who climbs or if people climb that or whatever. And I think that's like a whole other part of climbing which a lot of, I don't know, I, I guess I would just say people who pursue like the unknown would be looking for. And like, especially people that wanna do first ascents and be known for that or like are interested in putting up obscure routes. And they're like, I don't know if that will go but I I can find a way up like that type of mentality. I don't particularly do that. I'm not trying to put up FAs. I just want to become a better climber and not have to like quest into like some zone where I might get stuck and be like, oh. And so that might be a personality um, kind of driven thing, but yeah, sure. I definitely see things in my wow, It's really sweet, you know, Maybe, maybe if we can climb it.
0: That's so cool. Let's go on to photography. When was the first time you picked up a camera? And then you kind of knew that this is what you wanted to do.
1: Yeah, that was definitely a specific moment. I mean, I I always grew up playing with cameras. I never owned one as a kid, but I mean, I did eventually. I got one at a thrift store that was like a little film camera. Nice. And so I shot on that and I loved it. Like I had a Polaroid too. I guess I had a few dinky cameras that I played with and then I would just do the disposables for a long time. And so I definitely had a lot of pictures growing up of my dog and like my foot and like random things in the yard, but the day I really got in, it was when I bought my first SLR camera when I was 19. And then I moved to China when I was 20. And I started just shooting photography when I was out there, because for me, it was like, oh, I want to document my life and this adventure. I wasn't trying to like, it was also 2008. So I wasn't trying to be a thing or do a thing with it. I was just kind of like, ooh, and then I remember like the first photo I took where like, I saw something that blew my mind and I was just like that's fascinating it's so unlike anything I've ever seen you know I grew up in Idaho I've never seen someone crouching down by a river washing their shoes I just thought it was fascinating I was like this is crazy so I took this picture and I was like wow that was such a beautiful moment and I remember it felt really special and the feeling I had watching this man like this really old Chinese guy like washing his shoes in the river I just remember being like that felt really special he looked back at me and smiled And then that photo was like, I remember like looking back at it on my camera and being like, I don't know what this feeling is, but I really need to like figure out how to make this a thing. And so, yeah, I just started shooting all my adventures. And then then when I went back to school, I finished school, but I had nothing to do with photography with what I studied. I just shot portraits and different things for years, just trying to figure out how to make people look good on camera or like how to like, photograph nicely (laughs) not some blurry blobby photo like just learning how to photograph people and and then it just kind of went from there just exploratory
0: what took you to China
1: I taught English at a university okay so nice I was a 20 year old teaching 18 year olds
0: (laughs) wow my mom did that oh cool I'm a military brat so born in San Diego when I was two we moved to Japan such an enlightening moment like you talk about something so subtle like an older man washing his shoes in the river it's a Mm -hmm. culture thing too
1: that first experience is like pretty formative and I think it really sticks with you like all those like new new things like seeing a new way of life like something that's different than what you knew I think that's what stood out to me the most was like man just like that cultural exposure, like how else Mm -hmm. are you supposed to experience it if you don't ever get to see it, so.
0: You've been around the world, (laughs) that's so cool.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I lived in Peru and Ecuador after I graduated college, so I was in South America for a while and I've definitely traveled to a bunch of different places and work has taken me some cool places and worked internationally on a lot of different films and things, so.
0: Wow. This will be the last topic of conversation and then we can wrap it up here. But I want to dive into photography. Walk me through the progression from polar wards, portraits to adventure photography.
1: Yeah, I think, well, I actually had in college when I was 20, I had a friend that she told me she was a wedding photographer and I knew nothing about how people do this as a business or a career Mm. at that time. I just remember being like, wow, neat. She gets paid to take photos, that's crazy. And I remember asking her like, what, what can I learn to like become a better photographer? Cause like I didn't have, I feel like now everybody, a lot of people are photographers and a lot of people have big, nice gear and, and cameras. And like the phone in our pocket is an amazing camera. And in 2006, it was like, no, like if you had an SLR, it was kind of like, wow, you had a lot of money to buy this fancy thing. You know, at least that's how I always felt and saw it. And maybe that's just my little world, but I asked her like what her advice would be. And she just told me just figure out how to take great photos of a person just practice with people once you can take a good picture of a person then you'll be able to shoot anything and I remember she told me like focus on their eyes and like that's all I remember and so that's probably why I started taking portraits I'm like oh man I gotta like learn how to work with human beings like and I and I knew I'm not the type that's like gonna be a landscape photographer taking pictures of like waterfalls and stuff I'll just get so bored and while I have done that it's not all of the
0: adventures that you do it sounds like landscape would be a very seamless area. To yeah, and it, and it
1: is. And I think the thing is, it, it it could be. I just I find that my the spark I feel with photography is when I have something engaging with the landscape. Mm. So to me, that's a person. It's a subject. It's someone moving through the environment. So if I'm like in this wide sweeping landscape of crazy snowy peaks, and I have like this tiny little skier, you know, something to focus on that as it moves through it that's what I love is like the connection between us and the world around us. And so that's kind of what I'm driven to. And I think the landscape photography does, I mean, it plays a role obviously because you're out there and you're shooting it. It's all part of the story. I went from portraits to, I got into nonprofit work. So I did a lot of filmmaking and documentary work with humanitarian organizations. So while I was in school in Hawaii, I traveled to Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands and I did some like stories on um, climate change and, how the sea rise the sea level was rising and like these islands are going to disappear in a matter of years and like so I was like kind of combining my interests in international development and infrastructures and sustainability and long-term change in in impoverished nations and things like that that I was really interested in so I was combining that with film and photography so I was documenting and doing media and I, I also write so I did a lot of writing and storytelling around that and so it kind of segued into full time documentary photojournalism. And that took me to Haiti after the earthquake. It took me to Guatemala, Peru, Ecuador, all these other countries, Thailand, Tuvalu, Polynesia, out and about. And then at some point, it got to the point where I knew I needed to continue in a new direction because there really isn't money in, in that type of work. So <laughs> I just, I look, if I'm going to make this a career while well, I love this, yeah, like i'm not going to make any money i just i need to do something come up with another idea so then i started shooting more commercial work so i moved to la kind of the whole like hollywood scene developing like the experience being on set with a huge production with like hair makeup styling props wardrobe gaffers all the people so i learned about all the pieces that go into a production and i've done everything from producing All the way to the post production. So, start to finish, I just learned all the pieces that go into it from being on commercial sets or film productions or TV shows or whatever they are. And then just decided kind of where I feel I land. So, I've kind of landed where I am now, going through the commercial agency models type of world, working with that type of outlet. And now I've just crafted it into like outdoor adventure. And I, I shoot a lot of other things. Like, there's plenty of content that and work that i do that isn't always publicized so like i've i've shot a lot of tech events like Hewlett packard people making 3d printers and things and then so it's everything it's not just one i just focus on certain things at different times in my career but yeah it kind of evolves into i always say it's like the things i do become the things i work the 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 work i make so if i'm climbing it's naturally gonna progress into like i'm shooting climbing so that's kind of an
0: example that's so relatable it started out street photography in new york that got into portraits working with models some influencers and then um into sports photography now but the, all that's the things awesome. like what i've been interested in at the time you know what i'm diving yeah into.
1: Yeah. yeah yep i think the things we see kind of become the things like we manifest what we want in life like i always tell mm-hmm. people like you want to shoot climbing become a climber or like learn how to do the thing because especially with sports if you want to be able to capture that in its optimal, you know, in the best way, you have to understand like what goes into it. Like I shot events for a while and I shot a lot of yoga festivals and I didn't know much about yoga. I, I don't really do yoga. So I had to learn about yoga. I had to understand like what photographs, well, and what poses are actually correct because nothing to a yogi is more offensive than like publishing a photo where their form is completely off. I mean, it's like the same thing. Like if you see a photo of like something completely inaccurate and because you know the sport so well and like that would be a disaster so learning the ins and outs of of the subject that you're shooting and and if you happen to be doing that too like that's kind of a great way to do it
0: tell me if you agree with this mindset when I'm behind the lens I think of who I'm photographing would I like this photo or would I want to be captured in this way?
1: Yes, yes, I hear you. Yeah, correct. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> because yeah, there are some shots that you know are totally sick. Or like sometimes, you know, when you're doing a thing and you're like, man, this feels really cool. Like it might look really cool. And and also when you know the sport, you know what's the super athletic pose or you know what's a good body position or what looks, what just looks, what well, looks good. And as a photographer, like your job is to, like translate, you know, convert that show that And kind of exploit it in a way because, and sometimes, like, I'll have people do a thing, like some kind of movement or pose or something, and they'll be like, This is so weird and uncomfortable and awkward. But I'm like, Trust me, like, it photographs amazing. (laughs) And then, I I mean, I just did this on a shoot last week, and she was like, This is weird. And I'm like, You just wait. And then I showed her the edit, and she's like, Holy shit, that's awesome. And so, and that's not always the case with certain sports, but sometimes you can have like that creative flexibility, but I do think it makes a difference.
0: Out of curiosity, when you were doing portraits, did you have a secret into shooting? Like making the subject feel more comfortable or comfortable with the shoot and themselves?
1: Definitely. I think in general with anything, the more confidence you have, the better things are going to go because you go in feeling confident and secure as an individual and as an artist and the person behind the camera, like this is your responsibility to bring this vision to life and you believe in yourself and you know you're capable, that just get stronger and stronger and better and better over over time. So like years and years later, you're just going to be like way more confident. Like that's normal. But I have found that like for my photography, even in the early days when maybe I didn't have the experience or the skills or sometimes something would happen that I was like, dang, I don't know how to shoot that. Or I don't want, I don't know how to change the settings to make it look the way I want. And that's all part of learning and experience. But even in those moments, I think what can carry you through is like your personality. I think so much of my work is my ability to connect with people mm. and i am a really personable person i love to i'm i'm bubbly and like when i'm on set with people i am I'm, I'm basically my personality just like cracked open so i'm like excited i'm giddy i'm high energy i'm like smiling all the time i make stupid jokes so i make people laugh and even if they're bad they laugh cuz they feel bad for my bad joke but whatever it is I, I just think the personality makes a big difference because i know that when i'm on their set of the lens even as a photographer who knows the ins and outs of both sides i am very uncomfortable and so i just kind of go in with the assumption like what can we do to make people comfortable and like the number one thing is like warm up first like we can't just like meet someone and throw a camera in their face and expect mm-hmm. it to go like super great i i like to have conversations like get to know them a little bit like ease them up like give people snacks make sure people are fed and not hungry because the hungrier the gr- the grumpier we get all those things so people got to be like fully functioning especially with sports when you're like running around all day like you need to make sure that they are like the happiest they could be so like if they don't want to carry something you carry it or have someone else carry it like just make sure everyone's super happy and so it's kind of a lot of jobs as a photographer because if you want the best the best photos people got to be comfortable they got to feel themselves they got to be fully functioning so their energy levels they got to have their food and water and they got to have breaks if they need it and if they're not comfortable, we got to figure out why. And if they need, if they need something, you're, you're kind of tuning into their emotional needs and their physical needs. So you're kind of addressing all that. And then you're also making something beautiful out of it. And so it's a lot of work. It's like a lot of, and I think I have the personality for it. I'm like, I'm comfortable in those spaces and I, and I want to connect with people in that way. So I, I, I think it would be pretty difficult if you weren't. Um, but I'm sure there's some secret to people that don't really want to connect, but they can make it work, but that's what works for me.
0: There is an interesting aspect to awareness as a photographer. You touch base on a whole bunch of different things that go on really behind the scenes and behind the lens and the person taking Mm -hmm. the photograph, really like they have to be aware of all of these things happening. Feelings, emotions, it's just as much physical as it is emotional and spiritual, and then having the awareness and hopefully skill set to then capture and create a moment.
1: Yeah, because you might have moments where like, I've had women on set be like, dude, I'm breaking out right now. I'm PMSing. I'm like kind of (laughs) emotional or like whatever, or like maybe they're going through a hard thing and like they just went through a breakup or there's a divorce or something messy going on in their life. And it, when you're in a place of vulnerability with your client where they can at least they feel safe to express that to you, especially if they pull me aside and we have like I check in with people of like I sense that something's off. I'll be like, "Hey, how are you doing? Are you doing all right? Like something they can do and like they might be like, yeah, like this, that, and the other." And they might list their concerns or and then I can be more sensitive. I' like, hey, i'll we'll work together for this song and then I'll give you a good break or why don't you just go take a walk?" And so you kind of the awareness is very real because, If I sense that something's off or if someone has the, honestly, like the bravery to confront about that and like say something, because sometimes people are like, I'm on a job. I got to put on my A face and like, okay, here we go and pull it all together. You know, it's it's not always easy, especially when you're in extreme environments doing like extreme sports where it's like, dude, I'm scared shitless on this wall. I don't want to do this climb, but I'm here for a job and I'm, I'm the talent. Like I'm the climber for this photo and I got to make it happen. And I've been on the wall with people where we're both hanging on ropes next to other. Sure. I'm like, listen, if you don't want to do this climb, we don't have to do this climb. Like we'll do something else. I can always make it work. Like if I I can get different shots. Cause I'm not about to like force people into like creating art with me. If they're not feeling it, we can shift, we can pivot. And that's part of being a creative is like being able to work on your feet and be like, okay, that's not going to happen. So what can we do?
0: You hit the nail on the head. I love how you noted vulnerability and emotions mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that is underrated as a photographer or a creator is the trust that you have with the person you're photographing.
1: And I do think it's intentional. Like we have to be kind of like thinking about it and because it's one, it's hard sometimes because your brain, I mean, I think this career works well for me because I have a really juggly, I have a lot of things going on in my head all the time. So I'm really able to compartmentalize. Like I have a box of like my anxious talent that's a really afraid of this climb. I have a box for someone who says they're bloated, even though I think they look amazing. And then I have a box for like my producer who might be worrying about X, Y, Z. And then I'm worrying about, I'm aware that I have a 50 shot list that I have to get done in the next however many hours. You know, So there's there's a lot of things going on at the same time. Meanwhile, you're like, I also have to jug this line and make sure I don't do something unsafe. So yeah, just the multitasking, multi-dimensional brain tuning into all the things it's a lot.
0: Do you have a favorite project that you've worked on throughout your career?
1: Oh, that is so tough. I would say I think in the current time like where I am at present, I'll just kind of speak to that because it's kind mm-hmm. of happening and I'm really passionate about about this is like representation in the outdoors and that goes for color, gender, all the things. And so I have always like cared a lot about that and I think more specifically as a woman like I've seen the lack of women doing certain things and pursuing certain things especially in the outdoor adventure extreme sport space because in a lot of ways that there just hasn't felt like a safe place for us and like and that and that applies to all the things right like I think Mm -hmm. we're exploring a lot of that with like all the initiatives that are happening nowadays which is awesome so I mean, in my tiny corner of the world and like with my impact or what I'm able to do with my work is like, I just love nothing more than like highlighting women doing their sports. And I, and I get to do that a lot with one of my clients because it's an all women's brand. And so it's women led, women owned, women produced and all my productions are all women. And so wow. it's really cool to be surrounded and empowered by that because it's a different it's a different strength. It's a different feeling. Like when you're on a set with all women, and you're rock climbing and you're backcountry skiing. I, I mean, I can't even tell you how many crazy comments we've gotten from men or people out in the outdoors when, we, when we're doing this. Like I've had times where it's like seven or eight women and we're all rock climbing, putting up ropes or whatever, doing things. And people have walked by and been like, where are all the guys? Or like, wow. and, I don't, and, I, and I don't know that they mean to be whatever they're saying. <laughs> I don't know what their goal is in, in that type of commentary. But there's been a lot of things where it's like, for some reason it's like we still, it's like people expect that we have something to prove and like we're out, we shouldn't have to feel that way. We have a place here, everyone has a place here. I don't care what you are. I just think it's crazy that there's some degree of like, you have to earn that trust when, it, when the outdoors should not be that. You should just be able to step outside and like find yourself and see yourself. And so giving visibility to a lot of that is really important to me and and that applies to all all the things, but I just want people to feel seen, to feel heard, to to see themselves in the things that they want to see. Like we should all feel seen. And, and I think if that was my only goal, then that's, I guess it, because it's such a small, it may seem like a small thing, but it's huge. I mean, it's like the biggest, is feeling a sense of belonging and so.
0: What is next for Kylie fly?
1: man I have a lot of goals so we'll see how they all shape up but I mean I mentioned my portfolio rebuild which is seems like just an admin boring thing but for me it's a big deal because I've been doing this for 14 years and I have so much stuff at this point it's like a matter of just curating the best of the best to so all be in one place because I want to target new clients and new customers and like I just want to keep expanding and keep growing. I want to keep evolving. And so whether that's like trying to market myself in a new way, um, that's just a part of the growth and development of my business. And then other than that, like I have a goal that I like hate talking about sometimes because I'm not done. I haven't done it yet, but I have been writing a book for a long time.
0: Nice.
1: (laughs) And I swear it's going to happen. where it's going to happen. But I really I think now the things are kind of falling in a place where I'm actually getting the things done in a in a in the way that makes me feel more at peace and focused on the next thing because I have a hard time jumping around all my different goals. So once this box is checked I can move to this kind of thing. And so yeah, trying to dive into that and getting that wrapped up. I would love to have that done because <laughs> it's it's honestly ready. It's just like all Sitting somewhere and it just needs to be organized. It's a matter of like the boring part, like the creative juices have all kind of happened, and it's just a matter of getting it out in the world and making it presentable. So hopefully that happens.
0: If you don't (laughs) mind me asking, what is the book about?
1: Yes, it's called Musings of 2 AM. And so it will it will be called Musings of 2 A.m. So it's basically, as you can imagine, um, I went through some stuff, um, a bunch of challenges in my life at one point where I wasn't able to sleep for a while and there was like some years there where I was super anxious and I was sad and I was just dealing with all these heartbreaks and things that I found that I always felt the most inspired at 2am. Like I would just, I was mm. like words were just pouring out of me for those years and it was always 2am and I remember there was a day where I'm like, this is so weird. At least it's not 3am because 3am is still creepy to me because of all the creepy movies and stuff. <laughs> but, oh, wow. But yeah, so that's kind of where the title came from, but um, just kind of funny. And yeah, it's it's a bunch of excerpts of like experiences. I kind of write in an abstract way. So while some of it's like first person, it's also like, if you were to read it, I know what I was going through and thinking when I wrote something and I've had, and I've shared some of this on my Instagram. I have the hashtag Muses of 2am that I've been kind of posting for, I don't do it as much anymore, but if you were to click it and see some of those, I've had people, I get like a lot of messages from people when those have been released or published where their outtake from it, like their, whatever that word is, what they got from that excerpt Mm -hmm. was unlike anything you can expect because you get, you see someone else's words, but you feel it from your own experience. And that's like my ultimate goal is like, I don't want, it's not a book about me. It's not a book about like Kylie Fly's life or anything. It's like just my reflections, my musings, my thoughts and feelings, which are personal, but in the sense that it's abstract enough that it's not like, one time I broke my leg and now and like people who haven't broken their leg can't relate it's it's more (laughs) vague than that you know so yeah so they can like relate I think you get what I'm saying but Mm -hmm. that's basically what it is and then I'll intersperse my work and my photos and things like that
0: nice (laughs) that's so cool well congratulations on that uh stay tuned stay tuned for the book um (laughs) really cool all right yeah this has been great thank you so much yeah thank you All right. Signing off. Stay tuned. More to come. As always, stay for the stories.